Hey everybody, back again. Today I want to talk about uh, Bell Hooks's short essay titled The Oppositional Gaze, colon, Black Female Spectatorship. Because I had quite a few people asking me, uh, kind of strangely, uh, coincidentally, about Laura Mulvey's essay Visual Pleasure Narrative Cinema in which she talks about the male gaze, people were asking for other resources about it. And I'd forgotten about this essay and I was recommending this essay and I realized I'd never actually covered Bell Hooks's essay here. So I've covered Laura Mulvey, if you're interested in all that stuff, and this is a very good critique of that, without really being a critique. It's more a consideration of uh, another angle when we consider spectatorship with the cinema, where Laura Mulvey really considers or centers the experience of white women, uh, and that really leaves black women by the wayside. But yeah, before jumping into that, hi. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical concepts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you. So if you're new, and there has been quite a few new people here that I've been seeing subscribing, so thank you for doing that. Uh, if you haven't already, go and do it. It helped me out a lot. Um, and if you are new, you know, you can leave a comment and tell me where you're from. I said this in my last video, but if you missed it, uh, tell me where you're from and give me a reason why I should visit that place because I need recommendations on where to visit and I'd love to hear from you. If you haven't already subscribed, you'll see videos I release every single week, sometimes twice a week. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts. Or if you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find this on YouTube if you want the video for it at all. You can also follow me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. If you want to help me out, you can do all those things I already mentioned, uh, like, share, subscribe, or you can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. And yeah. Don't want to waste any more of your time with that stuff. Let's jump into this short, important essay. Now, Hooks begins this essay by reflecting on her own experiences as a child, where her parents would punish her, and this is probably an experience many of us could relate to, punish us for staring, or in that case, punish her for staring at somebody, because it's rude to stare at someone. And this is especially true if they're a person of authority in certain spaces, where if and this is really intensified in her experience. Growing up as a black woman in a largely segregated area in the United States, it was a big deal if you were a black child and you decided for some reason to stare at a police officer. That could have very bad negative effects. Or for anyone who's familiar with the story of Emmett Till, just a young black boy who stared or looked at uh, a white woman and he was murdered for it. There's a long legacy of black people in the United States and elsewhere being punished for staring. Staring at people who they are not allowed to stare at. People who in that context occupy the majority position and hold all the power. So staring, and she reflects upon this as a, as a child, was something that she had to be very careful about. The act of gazing, of being a spectator, was something that was taken from her as a child. And this was extended largely to large swaths of the black community. You had to be very careful who you were looking at because of possible reprisal, of fear of being uh, then punished for staring. So in that context, where the act of looking marked a punishable offense, looking became an act of opposition. It became an act of resistance to some extent, where the gaze was something that could do more than just gaze it disrupted power, even if it meant that it exerted power in a form of punishment. 
So it demonstrated that looking could itself be a kind of practice. It could be an act of resistance. Now she takes this idea, specifically she credits Foucault for this, and Foucault's idea that power always leaves room for resistance. It always leaves in various interstitial, um, or make it clearer, in Foucault's work, there, there's always room for a counter or resistance to dominant forms of power or of knowledge making. And this is because that no power or no base of knowledge can be readily established without a necessary antagonism or point of antithesis or an opposite that it can compare itself to in order to attain its dominant status. So it doesn't attain its dominant status by persuasion, by you know presenting an actually uh, seductive alternative to the world or option for the world. It says, we are not that silly thing over there. We are not that weakness over there. We are strong because we are not that weak thing. And so it doesn't actually bolster itself up because of its own power, but only by its comparison to an other. Now, because that comparison is always there, it's necessary, it reveals the extent to which there's always going to be that room for resistance because it's, it's over there. It's always going to be there. And so Hooks meditates on this to you know, lend credence and credit to Foucault's work to say that even in this, what, what would appear to be an innocuous thing, looking is in itself, it can embody a type of resistance. And we get this as well in the work of Franz Fanon, who I've covered on this channel, and I've covered Foucault as well, if you want to go and check out all those texts that I've covered, where in Fanon's work, he identifies very clearly that looking is a form of violence in a lot of cases, where he reflects on how uh, at one point he's sitting on a train or he's waiting at a train stop, and a young white boy is looking at him, and in that moment, he suddenly fears for his life where he feel, fears for the repercussions of what this act of looking will mean for him. Perhaps this child's mother is going to see this kid looking at this black man, and the child's mother, this white child and white mother, are going to think, this mother is going to think, oh, my boy feels threatened by this black man, so therefore we have to engage in some kind of punishment against him just for this act of looking. So while it is perhaps innocuous, it is, it is harmless in itself, it can have very real effects that can be very violent and can be very real. Now this essay isn't about looking abstractly, so to speak. It's about looking at television, looking at the cinema, looking at film. And she says that in her segregated neighborhood, where they're really only connection to, for the most part, to white culture and white people, because everything was segregated, uh, was through television. And she says that when she would watch television, there was a lot she would see. She would see certain depictions of black people, certain depictions of white people, and how these depictions were meant to confirm and affirm the various racial dynamics that were dominant at the time. And she found that she would interrogate what was seen on the screen, and many of her friends and family would do the same they would look at what was being depicted about black people, how black people were being depicted, and they would question it and say, this is, this is not right. This is not an actual reflection of our lives. Uh, this is only 
a representation of a certain person's idea or people's idea about what how black people live, how black people are in, in that context. Now, not all people in, in that context, not all black people would look upon film or television critically. Some of them would just, as she, would, she says, they would kind of numb themselves and not interrogate the images that they saw. They would just forget about racism. They would forget about um, anything like that and would just consume what they saw because it was entertaining, which is like, who's gonna blame anyone in that context there where, you know, life is very difficult and you're looking for any moment to have enjoyment. Uh, it might come at the expense of actually interrogating the negative images that are depicted. The oppositional gaze though, was a gaze that interrogated. And so in that interrogation, in that opposition, it gave birth to a desire, a desire to make different images. And here we see the beginnings of what would be, uh, what would form into black cinema, where you'd see films that are made by black people for black people in order to push against the depictions that were largely monopolized by white production companies and white, uh, white imaginations or the imaginations of white people. But even in this opposition, there was something missing where the people who actually had the power and the wealth and the resources to go ahead and make uh, black cinema, to make films by black people for black people were mostly black men. And so what we saw was a replication of a similar kind of oppression, a similar kind of stereotypical image making, now not at the expense of all black people, but at the expense of black women, because it would reflect the interests of black men. And she provides many different examples for this, and I don't wanna go into all of them because you know, you'd know you have to explain the plot of the film and all the characters, and that would take a while. Uh, so you really have to read the essay to get all of the examples here. But she suggests that in so many films made by black men or from the perspective of black people, white women were still given precedence. White women were still constructed as a desirable love interest in the narrative. Whereas black women were depicted as being hardworking, being uh, not as fragile, being not as vulnerable uh, or anything like that and depicted instead as being uh, aggressive, being demanding, not you know just acquiescent or accommodating like white women were depicted. And so even though there was the, there were these changes occurring in the depiction of black people in the cinema, in film, black women were still being excluded. So here was emerged, or here emerged another oppositional gaze. And this was an oppositional gaze from black women who would interrogate these images as really mirroring the same cycle, the same thing that in a lot of cases, Laura Mulvey talks about of uh, objectifying women. In her case, you know, she's really only talking about white women, objectifying white women, but instead of it being by white men, it's now by black men. So the oppositional gaze in this sense interrogates the limits of this construction of womanhood, where Laura Mulvey says that women are depicted as innocent, as virgin-like, as objects. By considering the experiences and perspectives of black women, we see that that is not the case. In the case of black women, they're depicted as being aggressive. They're depicted as being demanding. And so what we see is a, a splitting, a rupturing, a splintering, of 
Laura Mulvey's idea, and now we have a more nuanced perspective that can really account for these differences, these variations in the depictions of women across races. It gives us a more holistic, broad picture of what's going on here, and it reveals some of the other hidden dynamics of Laura Mulvey's psychoanalytic approach, where it always centers uh, white men and white women and their experiences and their family structures and their livelihoods as being the determining factors for any kind of representation and all the consequences from it as well. So again, but not all black women would see these images and think anything wrong of it. For it to be possible to have critical black female spectatorship, the kind of thing that Hooks is describing as the oppositional gaze, it must do one thing. It must actively resist the imposition of dominant ways of knowing and seeing. And it is this oppositional gaze that participates in this active resistance that opens the door for a filmic production or any kind of cultural production that is going to consider the experiences of those people that have been historically excluded or when included, included in a negative light or stereotypically so as to craft a space for these people to demonstrate, to depict their own lives in the ways that make sense to them. And that's pretty well it. I mean, she gives so many examples of film that, you know, I don't want to go into each one of them for the reasons I said, but if there's anything I excluded that you think I really shouldn't have, I'd love to hear about it. Anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, and yeah, please comment, tell me where you're from. I'd, lo I'd love to hear from you. If you've listened to this in podcast form and you like what I did, you can leave five stars if it's on Apple, I think, or whatever platform. Uh, leave a review and uh, yeah, catch you next time. Take care.